Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things we have heard about what you are doing amongst your people. Please help us now to attend to your word. Give us hearts for obedience that we may grow in love for you and for your world. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Here's a quotation about David from students' exam papers. David was a Hebrew king who was skilled in playing the lyre, L-I-A-R. He fought the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in biblical times. And there was a glorious one about his son Solomon and his 200 wives and 700 porcupines. (laughs) It's wonderful stuff. Tonight's reading from 2 Samuel brings us to the fulfillment of what had begun years before in the life of David. You'll find it on page 308 in the Bibles if you'd like to follow. David had been anointed as king in waiting in 1 Samuel 16. And in the passage that was read to us now, David at last becomes king. Will took us last week through chapter one and the death of King Saul. Tonight, we start looking at David as king. So I'm going to begin by filling in the key points about what happened between the end of chapter one and chapter five so that we can see what the situation was at the start of David's reign. And then we'll look at David's, if you like, job description as king and the hints, the very real hints that emerge in chapter 5 about where David was going to take the nation during his reign. And as we look closely at this chapter, we may well become conscious of a paradox that is opening up. On the one hand... David was described in uh, 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14 as a man after God's own heart. But in chapter 5, there are signs of trouble ahead. Way back, the nation had demanded a king. In response, Samuel, who was the prophet then, had warned them about the way kings are likely to behave. And if you'd like to turn to page 278, we'll just read a little bit of what Samuel said. Chapter 8 and starting at verse 10. Well, verse 11, actually. This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. 
He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Will you get the picture? On top of this warning, there's also a rebuke to the nation. They had requested a king because they had rejected God as their king. And these two statements still stand by the time we get to chapter 5. Firstly, that David was a man after God's own heart. And secondly, God's warning to the nation about kings. They open up a paradox for us to look into. And we'll be doing that as we try to see how we can apply this reading. But first, we need to know what happened. So let's pick up the story between chapters 2 and 5. Don't follow it, try to follow it in your Bible, because I'm going to go quite quickly. But you might like to read the chapters when you get home. <clears throat> David had been on the run from King Saul for some years. He'd been living with his men in caves, trying to avoid being killed by Saul and his soldiers. David had been anointed by Samuel, as I said, some years earlier as the eventual successor to Saul, but he didn't become king immediately on Saul's death. He only went to Hebron sometime later, and that was after he'd inquired of the Lord whether the time was right. Timing was everything for David. He had a high sense of the need for obedience to God. And let's face it, Saul's supporters could still have been very dangerous to him. So seeking the Lord's counsel made sense at every level. And it means that we as readers get a strong sense of David waiting for the Lord. David didn't try to force things. He didn't seize Judah. And none of the blood that was to be spilled to make him king of Judah was shed at David's hands. It was the work of others who were not acting on David's instructions, although we would have to say that he benefited from the stabbings that were carried out on his behalf and which cleared the field. But David's own hands were clean. And we were told towards the end of the first book of Samuel about the broad basis of support that David had. He was God's anointed. Jonathan was in favor. Twice we're told that Saul declared that David was the Lord's anointed, even when Saul was raging with jealousy against him. And Abigail, one of David's wives, also went public in her view of this. So what we get is a picture of God's will prevailing, despite the fact that there were some obstacles. From chapter 2 onwards, a hopeful picture has been building up, so that by the time we get to chapter 5, there's a strong sense that God's man is on the throne of Judah. And it helps to give weight to the narrative about David. 
The story has cracked on at a fair old pace with violence and mayhem at every turn. The writer has very skillfully communicated the turbulence of the times. It's a tale of disruption and chaos, of war and violence and murder. If you've been watching The White Queen on Sunday evenings about the Wars of the Roses, you might well see some likenesses between this time and 15th century England. The Holy Land was split into two kingdoms. There was the kingdom in the north, Israel, ruled over by Saul's son, Ishboth, if, I can never say this name, Ishbosheth. And there's the southern kingdom of Judah, where David was king. And then in chapter 3, we're told that the two houses went to war, and it went on for a very long time. Then there's yet another stabbing. This time, it's that man whose name I can't pronounce, King Ishbosheth. So what happens next? God's man is on the throne of Judah, but there's nobody to take the throne of Israel. All suitable candidates by now have been bumped off. So the tribes of Israel come to David and beg him to be their king too. Again, David has a broad basis of support. During all those years, they've observed that David is a powerful warrior. You may recall that the reason the people asked Samuel for a king all those years before was so that they could become a nation like the nations. They could become more powerful, more secure, and more settled. And David's skills as a warrior must have made him an attractive prospect. And this would all also have the advantage of reuniting Israel and Judah. Join forces and those Finkelsteins, or to be correct, Philistines, will soon know about it. But it's made clear that this wasn't just some scheme that the people had cooked up for themselves. Look at the end of verse 2. We're back in chapter 5 now. We're talking about the call of God here. You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be their ruler. This is a loaded sentence. The leaders of Israel are deliberately avoiding the word king. Sometimes the Hebrew word is translated, I read, as prince. But the commentaries point out that there's debate about just what the Hebrew word does mean. So by using this undefined word, the tribes of Israel achieve two things. Firstly, they allow the kingship of God to take precedence. Nobody could now accuse them of rejecting God as their king. And secondly, here is a king-to-be who should not be over-exalted. In his commentary on the books of Samuel, Walter Brueggemann says that the tribes of Israel were acutely aware of the dangers of creating a royal monster. 
limits are set. Some of the ideas are not a million miles from some of our ideas about constitutional monarchy. But there's more. In verse 3, David makes a compact with the people at Hebron before the Lord. At Hebron, where he had already been anointed king of Judah, David enters into an agreement with the people of Israel. It speaks of mutuality and negotiation. And it gives substance to God's calling to David to shepherd his people. So let's think now about that shepherd metaphor for a king. It's a striking image for a ruler even today. But at the time of King David, it must have been quite rare. The writer is getting us to look back to King David's childhood when he was the youngest son and his job was to look after the sheep. Somebody drawn from the least of the people now reigns over Israel and Judah under the hand of God. Nobody knows as well as this king what it means to be a shepherd. And the first requirement of a shepherd, of course, is to remember that the shepherd exists for the sheep and not the sheep for the shepherd. Their well-being is paramount. By contrast, a bad shepherd acts as if the sheep exist for the enhancement and profit of the shepherd. On occasion, as we read through the accounts of David's reign in 2 Samuel, we see him giving himself for the people. And on occasion, we see him using them for his own ends. In this initial invitation, the tribes of Israel envisage that David will use his considerable talents and his great power for the sake of the community. So what we've got is a pivotal moment in the life of the reunited kingdom of Israel and Judah, and in David's life too. After all the turbulence of what has gone before, there's a feeling of peace, of expectation. David is settled as king, and the nation can hopefully develop and prosper under him. So what will David do? Will this reunited nation, these 12 tribes of Israel, remain a simple, agrarian, tribal society as they had under Saul? Or will they develop? David shows himself to be politically astute. One of the first things he does is to establish Jerusalem as a capital city. It's a masterstroke. Jerusalem was between Israel and Judah and wasn't really identified with either of them. By capturing Jerusalem from the Jebusites, 
David was able to make a fresh start. Jerusalem became associated with the monarchy, which meant that the city transcended all those old tribal allegiances. And he called it the city of David. We still sing about it in such a way. In steady steps, David was bringing what had been a tribal and rural economy into something more centralized and competitive. Under David, the nation did indeed begin to prosper. Trade was established. Wealth poured in. In time, taxes would be levied. Justice would be taken out of the hands of the leaders of the various tribes and vested in the king. In time, the Ark of the Covenant would be brought to Jerusalem and the city would become the holy city and the succession would come to be settled in David's family. So David now controlled faith, fairness, finance, and the future. Perhaps this kind of development of the nation was King David's way of being a shepherd to them. But I wonder how you are feeling about him at this point. During the writing of this sermon, there have been times when I've felt great warmth towards David, but there have been times when I felt anything but. Verse 10 says that David became more and more powerful because the Lord was with him. We can't be in any doubt that David took his responsibilities as king seriously. Increasing the security and prosperity of his people was part of David's vision for how he would be faithful to his calling. Addressing their poverty was part of being their shepherd. David was trying to make a better world for them. But the way he went about all of this took power from the 12 tribes, the grassroots leaders of the community, and concentrated it in the hands of the monarchy. If Samuel had been alive by this time, I imagine he might have given David a hard time about it. And certainly, later on in 2 Samuel, there come rumblings of discontent amongst the people. And David has paid a high price too. The simplicity of his former relationship with God has gone, the playfulness of it, the joy of it. And as the story progresses through the rest of the book, we see ruthlessness and self-indulgence beginning to emerge in David. Samuel's warning about kings was well-founded. All too easily, they come to think that everything is about them, because most people are too deferential to rebuke them. And that brings us to verses 6 
to 8. The matter of David's attitude towards people who were blind and deaf. Sorry, blind and lame. To capture Jerusalem and make it his own capital city, David and his army had to overcome the Jebusites, who were resident there. The Jebusites taunted David, you don't scare us. Your army is so pathetic that our blind and lame people could keep you lot out. David, hmm, pathetic, are we? We'll see about that. Actually, we're cleverer than you. We've already found the weak point in your defences, and we're coming to get you right now. So far, perhaps it's a bit like Monty Python. But then comes a statement that's truly appalling. Verse 8. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. David excluded people from the palace on the grounds of disability. In fact, it may even have been worse than that. Some of the commentators thought that actually he excluded them from the city. He was supposed to be a king and a shepherd. Yet this looks too much like David indulging his irritation with the Jebusites for comfort. And he could do it because he was king. Not very becoming. And we know that this exclusion was not God's will. David was wrong. How do we know? Because Jesus, the good and perfect shepherd, the king of kings, told John the Baptist's disciples that the inclusion of blind and lame people was a sign of God's kingdom. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. So we have the paradox of a man after God's own heart and Samuel's warning about kings and some truly appalling behavior by this king who was called to be a shepherd. These contrary truths about David exist side by side. The writer of the book of Samuel is strikingly honest about David. How might we respond? I think there are two temptations that we do well to resist. The first is to try to move too quickly towards resolving the conflict between these contrary elements. If we try to smooth it out and resolve it too quickly, we lose some of the force of the way the writer has told us the story. We lose the benefit of his honesty about David. Let's allow the paradox 
to remain a paradox. Because isn't that often how life is? Sinners trying to serve God. Trying to extrapolate the will of God from their own human and at times very muddled thinking that's full of all kinds of stuff and to discern the will of God, but their own stuff getting in the way. And the second temptation is a related one. There is a danger of trying to square the circle that just because this is King David we're talking about, we try to resolve the paradox by making David's treatment of blind and lame people acceptable in some way, finding some way that it wasn't the wrongdoing that we somehow know that it was. We don't need to do that. Let's allow David's sin to be sin. Then we'll have a human king before us who was a man after God's own heart. And we'll do justice to the complexity of discipleship for him and the temptations that face those who would try to make this world a better place. David did for God what he believed God wanted. If you like, he set out to make something beautiful for God, a nation that was secure and prosperous. And yet at times his vision was clouded by his own stuff. And here's the point of the paradox for us, that sometimes Christian people are afraid of getting involved in a messy and complicated world because they may end up sinning. Some decisions are not straightforward ones between good and bad, but a search for the best way in awful circumstances. Not everything can be framed in the pure way that we would like it to be. And sometimes Christian people feel that they should avoid these situations lest they sin. David knew what it was to be a sinner. And yet God was with him. He was a man after God's own heart. God didn't let go of him. And ultimately, the conflict does resolve because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd and king of kings who laid down his life for the sheep and goes after the ones who have gone astray and whose kingdom is made up of sinners all who are blind, spiritually or physically or lame in any way. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that we are sinners who are forgiven and loved by you. And all that we try to do for you is marked by weakness and our sinfulness. Give us such a knowledge of your grace and forgiveness that we follow you wherever you are leading us. That we allow you to work through us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.